Welcome to the podcast. I'm Duncan CJ. You're listening to Happiness, episode 145. Our mission is for every man, woman, and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. Today, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Michael Shermer back onto the show for round two. Dr. Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the Science Salon podcast, a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things and The Believing Brain. Also, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc and Heavens on Earth. His new book is Giving the Devil His Due. He's appeared on Oprah, The Colbert Report, Larry King Live and his two TED Talks have been viewed by millions. Neil deGrasse Tyson described Michael as a beacon of reason in an ocean of irrationality. Michael, thank you so much for coming back on for round two. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be back on. Whenever there's a high level of anxiety and uncertainty in an environment, be it your own personal life or society at large, belief in conspiracy theories goes up. Why is that? Well, because conspiracy theories are a way of um, kind of wrapping your mind around a complex and chaotic world and simplifying it. Uh, and there's also a tendency to think that, um, you know, someone who's in power has more power than they actually have, uh, than you, than you think you have. And therefore they're pulling the strings to make things happen, that sort of thing. So groups that are out of power tend to be more conspiratorial, conspiratorial about groups in power. Uh, so typically in a, in a, uh, an election, the losing party will concoct more conspiracies, theories about the rigged election and so on than the winning party. The Trump administration was a little odd in that in that way. Trump kept promoting conspiracy theories even after he won. And it was like, dude, you won. You're supposed to drop the conspiracies. Hillary's supposed to be the one doing conspiracy theories now. So that was kind of weird. Uh, and, of course, COVID-19 has both. You know, it has a lot of uncertainties. There's still a lot we don't know. And, you know, science has been grappling to try to figure out what the hell is going on with this virus, where it came from, uh, you know, where it's going. Is there more than one? How are we going to have a vaccine? And on and on and on. That kind of uncertainty fuels Conspiracy theories, of course, about powerful people like pharmaceutical companies, government agencies, large corporations, rich people like Bill Gates. These are uh, almost always the target of conspiracy theories when there's some uh, medical scare. Uh, for example, autism and vaccines uh, is a classic case, but pretty much all of the previous um, uh, potential pandemics, which never panned out in my lifetime, like this one has this is a you know once in a century kind of pandemic um and of course that fuels conspiracy theories um so uh, you know our next issue of skeptic we have a big cover story on QAnon, you know which is one of the crazier ones i've heard in a long time but really in fact it's kind of a recycled old conspiracy theory about uh, pedophiles and sex ring operations and satanic cults you know these ideas go way way back and the QAnon is really just recycling all of that by and, and then grafting onto it things like, you know, Trump is fighting against the deep state. And in the deep state is this satanic cult of pedophiles led by Hillary or whatever. The names change, uh, but the, and the details are specific for a particular conspiracy theory, but the deeper themes 
come up over and over and over. Um, you know, repressed memory conspiracy theory and the satanic cult conspiracy theory and pedophile ring conspiracy theories. And they have just enough element of truth to them. For example, pedophile pedophilia is a real thing, as we saw with the Catholic Church. Um, and so, um, you, you know, we can't just automatically discount anybody's ideas about that. But the question is always, is it is it what it's being said to be? Is it really a vast right-wing conspiracy or left-wing conspiracy or whatever? So our approach at Skeptic is that you have to just take each claim one at a time. What is the evidence for that particular claim rather than some sweeping theory about everything in the world? And real, real conspiracy theories that turn out to be accurate are usually very narrowly focused for example insider trading or corporate manipulation things like i think you talked about the um the volkswagen emission scandal or some government in a specific country attempting to manipulate an election those things if it's very narrowly focused the the probability that's right increases yeah, yeah. so what, what we want to know is is the conspiracy theory true or not it, because some of them are, some of them are not. You know, Watergate was a conspiracy. The assassination of Lincoln was a conspiracy. Uh, Iran Contra, that was a conspiracy. You know, and so on. There's lots of them. Um, the question is, is does that mean all of them are? No. So how do we distinguish? What's the you know kind of algorithm we can run to distinguish between true and false conspiracy theories? So you mentioned a few. How how big is a conspiracy theory? You know, if it's Again, cheating the emission scandal, uh, emission standards scandal by Volkswagen. That's a very specific conspiracy theory. That one turned out to be true. Uh, you know, insider trading. You know, government uh, uh, politicians. You know, that are lining their personal pockets or, you know, uh, upgrading their homes through the you know government uh, largesse. Those are very targeted, specific things that don't surprise any of us because that's what people do. If they can get away with it, they'll cheat. But, you know, when you scale it up to, you know, world domination, Bill Gates is going to control the world. You know, okay, come on. Uh, that's not likely to be true because nobody can control the world, you know. And when I was researching my course on conspiracies and conspiracy theories that I did for Amazon Audible teaching company that um, – and one of the best quotes I, I found was that even scarier that, that there's some cabal of, you know, lizard aliens running the world is that no one is running the world. You know, no one's in charge. No one's pulling the string. <laughs> Shit happens. That's just the way it is. It's mostly just randomness. And that, in a way, is scarier. It's like, whoa, you mean what? <laughs> and uh, I think that, in part, is a good explanation for conspiracy theories. People would rather have, you know, that there's... 12 guys in London call the Illuminati and they're calling all the shots. You know, that, that seems a little more comforting. I can get my mind around that rather than that economies, you know, are these huge complex systems that no one really understands. Whoa. Okay. That, you know, that's even scarier. Can you describe entropy to anyone who's not familiar with the phrase? I know, I know some people are, but what do we mean when we talk about entropy? <laughs> yeah, shit happens. That's the bumper sticker version of entropy. Well, entropy is just, uh, you know, that um, in, in any particular system, energy runs down. So um, that's why there's never going to be, there never has been and never will be a perpetual motion machine because entropy takes its effect. It's the second law of thermodynamics. That is, systems move from more ordered to less ordered. 
Um, and so this translates into things like warm things get cold. They move toward the gradient moves toward the ambient temperature in the room, for example. So you need to heat up your your burger or your coffee, uh, you know, to get it above room temperature. Or if it's cold, then it'll warm up to room temperature. So, and that has to do with how molecules are moving around in a system, a gas or a liquid. Um, in, in terms of like, think of something like a sandcastle on a beach, you know, so you put all this effort into making a sandcastle. There, there are far more ways for the sand grains to be ordered in a kind of a blob as opposed to the number of ways the sand grains can be ordered into a nice castle. And so uh, as the day goes on and wind and surf and little children running around stopping on your sandcastle, that's entropy. There's just so many more ways for the grains to dissolve into a, a gruel of nothingness rather than an ordered structure. So how this applies to human systems, for example, um, there's far more ways to fail than there are to succeed in life. So you have to try lots of things. You have to accumulate a lot of failures and, and expect it and be okay with it because that's normal. That's to be expected. Uh, and if you, if you just think about like like how many people can get that job, president of the United States, CEO of Google, whatever, uh, you know, almost nobody. You know, so uh, when people think, well, I got overlooked for the job because of racism or sexism or some bias against me or they don't like me or whatever, it's far more likely that, you know, the thousand people wanted that job and you were one of the thousand. It was one out of a thousand. There's probably no other reason other than entropy. It's just almost nobody can do that. Right. And, uh, and and that's true for everything we do uh, all the way up to, you know, that if you don't make your bed and clean your room, it's not going to order itself. You have to do it. Right. Uh, your body is constantly running down. Entropy is just taking its toll. There's far more ways for you to um, have your system, your bodily system fall apart than it is for it to be healthy. So you have to push back against entropy by, say, working out every day, eating healthy foods, whatever. And so most of the stuff we get from the self-help movement, um, self-help and actualization movement, it has to do with just pushing back against entropy, just doing stuff every day, make your bed every day, clean your room every day, you know, work out every day, shower and, you know, clean your clothes. It's just stuff that and all of it, you know, don't forget to weed your garden and, and, and clean the dust out of your room. All of that is just pushing back against entropy. Uh, because that's the natural state of things. Things will just run down if you do nothing. Uh, so uh, the, the purpose of life is to uh, do something, to push back, carve out a little niche of order in the sea of chaos that is entropy. That perfectly answered my next question. I was going to say, you talk about the first law of life is to fight back against this entropy. So to accept it, step one is to realize what entropy is, that you're not going to suddenly leave your car out for five months and you're going to come back and it's going to be cleaner and working better than when you <laughs> yeah. left it. So just to recognize that and then to be fighting back against it. Yeah, I find this also, it, it also helps me... Um, I think adjust to failures that I have, uh, not, not just me, but, but, but anybody, you know, once I kind of understood this concept, I'm always trying new things. I'm, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to do a TV show. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to do this or that. I'm, I'm always kind of pushing myself to try new things. So when I fail, which is most of the time, I, I don't think, oh, 
oh, somebody had it in for me or the, or the stars were not aligned or God's angry or, or, you know, uh, or, or it's a racist society or the p- people don't like white males anymore. I don't go to any of those places. I just think, well, you know, most things I try, I'm going to fail. That's just the normal thing. So I don't take it personally and think, oh God, another failure. It's like, well, another failure. Okay, good. I, I think if you, if you keep that in mind, it doesn't feel so bad to fail. In 1859, John Stuart Mill, he wrote that he who knows only his own position doesn't even know that. Can you expand on that? Yes. Well, so here um, I use that quote in in Giving the Devil is Due to talk about um, why we should be open to what other people have to say, that that, that is their opinions. And the reason is, is because none of us are omniscient. We're not deities. We don't know everything. Nobody's smart enough to create a whole society from scratch or invent a whole new lifestyle from scratch. You got it or a theory or anything. So you got to talk to other people. You got to engage with other people and try your ideas out. Again, back to entropy, most ideas that I come up with are probably going to be wrong. That's true for everybody, including scientists, right? So scientists are often just spitballing ideas just to see what sticks, what works. What's left standing is, you know, not true with a capital T, but it has a likelihood of being true with a small t in science. And, um, and, and again, the only way to figure that out, because most people are, you know, none of us are omniscient, is to engage with other people, talk to other people, find out what they think about your ideas and or what their ideas are, especially people that don't agree with you. Because it's easy to find people uh, that agree with you because that's what we that's what feels good. I want to talk to people and hang out with people that agree with me. And uh, and this is true for all of us. You know, conservatives uh, watch Fox News and liberals watch CNN or whatever. And uh, and conservatives read The Wall Street Journal or while liberals, Los Angeles Times. Right. So I I read them both and and add them up, divide by two to get the truth. No, just kidding. (laughs) Again, just to kind of get different perspectives on a, a particular subject broadens the horizon to, you know, what's possible. Have you have you heard the Charlie Munger quote? where he said, what is it? He was like, I never allow myself to hold an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. Yeah, I like that. That's great. I might use that. That's good. Um, although I, that, I'm not sure that's actually true for anybody, but it's a good ideal to strive for. Um, you know, before I commit to a belief, I'm going to talk to somebody who doesn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good uh, strategy I've used with my students on, say, the, the abortion issue. You know, most of them are pro-choice. And, uh, you know, okay, what, what are the best arguments on the pro-life position? Most of them have no idea. Um, and, you know, so it's like, well, go, go research that and see how strong your pro-choice position is. And if you come back and you're just as strong as you were, well, then all the better. Then your position is even stronger by knowing what the other side says. Maybe it's not. Maybe you change your mind. And that, that too would be uh, enlightening. I was watching um, in um, an interview you did on the Rubin Report, I appreciated the amount of times you said the phrase, I think that, I think this, or I think that. Your your lack of certainty makes me trust you more, not less. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. Uh, and most of the time, I, I mean that. I mean, I, I'm not sure about a lot of things, and I try to think it through. But as a strategy in, with, in terms of engaging with other people, I think it's good because it shows the other person you're listening, that you respect what they have to say and you want to think about it. 
and process it before you just blurt out, you know, your opinion. I mean, often conversations are just two monologues, just two people talking past each other. And you're just waiting for the other person to shut up so you can make your comment and you're not really listening. And and people know that you can sense whether somebody's listening or not. Are they looking at you in the eyes? Are they nodding? Are they trying to process it? What you're saying? Are they thinking about it? So, you know, this idea of steel manning the other person's position instead of straw manning it is to repeat uh, in your own words what you think they're saying. So when I do this, I often find that either I didn't get it. Uh, quite right, and so they correct me, which is good. Or I think often what happens is they hear what their argument sounds like, and they think, hmm, that doesn't sound that great. I think I'll modify it in real time here. And then we end up sort of going back and forth about what exactly it is that's on the table to be debated or argued. And that kind of refinement back and forth is really constructive in terms of getting at what the core differences are between us. And, um, you know, so I, I think that's a useful strategy, particularly in political matters where, you know, things are so divided between left and right. And it's always been that way. But uh, we know from data showing that, you know, that the center is getting smaller and the two left and right sides are pulling further apart and getting larger in terms of raw numbers and percentages. And uh, so it's more important than ever to find out what the people on that other side over there are saying. Uh, if we can kind of reach any kind of compromise to, you know, just sort of keep things going in civilization without the whole thing breaking down. Of course, a lot of people are worried about the upcoming election. We're doing this two weeks uh, before the November 3rd presidential election here in the United States. And you know, a lot of people are worried, including me a little bit. Uh, I'm not a doomsayer, but, you know, things can't shit happen, shit happens, so to speak. And uh, you never know. So I think uh, it, it's good uh, to kind of calm things down. Social media is not helpful. Neither is talk radio. Uh, uh, all these TV shows, in part, are uh, they have a sort of a, a an advertising model where they have to ramp up uh, the heat of the subject under debate here to make it seem polarizing and crazy and way out there to keep eyeballs on there so they can sell more ads and stay in business. I mean, it's you know, I, I don't know to what extent people like. Uh, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson on Fox News really believe what they're saying, or I could maybe go to you know the other side on MSNBC and some of their hosts, and do they really believe it? Are they kind of pushing the narrative a certain direction further because it gets more eyeballs because it's more controversial? This started actually back in the late '80s, early '90s, with the rise of conservative talk radio. People like Rush Limbaugh discovered that the more antagonizing they were to the the left uh you know the more uh people listen to their show and so you, you ramp it up and demonize the other side and people like to listen to that you know it's like on a on a lighter scale you know the the, the, pe- the reasons people gave for listening to howard stern you know because i want to hear what he has to say because i want to see what crazy thing he says next it's almost just kind of entertaining <laughs> how crazy can this guy get how far out there can they get and now you listen to conservative talk radio or television and and the word the left that must come up a thousand times an hour you know this is all you hear the left the left the left the left the left the liberals the left the progressive the you know regressive left they they just go on and on whereas you know 90% of liberals are pretty centrist they're not they're not at all like what you know they're being described as and that that to me is problematic 
the evolutionary psychology of literature. I never thought I'd come hear those two words together, but the study was conducted that compiled the greatest works of literature and did a content analysis to see what themes come up over and over again. What did that, what did that show? Well, I like that area because it's, it's looking for uh, the commonality in human nature. That is certain themes come up in uh, all cultures and in their literature because they have to do with things that matter to us. So it's kind of tapping into human nature. So things like sex and love, power, uh, hierarchy, truth-telling and lying, honesty, trustworthiness. Uh, those are things that matter for human relations. We're a social primate species. Uh, it's important that we have a reputation that's uh, positive amongst our fellow primates and because you need them. None of us can survive on our own. Um, and uh, you want to be loved and, and respected. And so how do you do that? And, and so a lot of novels, that the, the themes revolve around those. They come up over and over and over. Same thing in Hollywood. I mean, long before evolutionary psychology, it was always kind of a joke in Hollywood that there's like seven different kinds of movies. That's it. They're all variations on seven different themes. Now, maybe it's 10 or 12 or six or whatever. But but the idea is that, you, that movies are not random in terms of what they're about. They're about certain things that come up over and over. You know, rom-con, right? So it's a, you know, romantic comedy, you know, and it's certain things that, that, you know, that are that are common in every single one of those kinds of movies or, you know, drama or adventure or whatever. You know, you put a hero in, 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 in uh, peril and then you get him out of peril. You know, the hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell stuff about, you know, what what, what the appeal of Star Wars was. When um, uh, when Bill Moyers had that series in the late 80s with Joseph Campbell talking about Star Wars and what it really meant, you know, mm. that was an eye opener to a lot of people like, wow, I had no idea that's why I like Star Wars. You know, you got a good guy and a bad guy, black and white and a hero's journey he has to leave home and he goes on an adventure and his life is threatened, but he survives and he comes back with the message of what it all means and it helps his family and his community and so on that's a, a very common uh, theme like christ going out into the desert and coming back and you know being crucified and then resurrected you know the born again thing starting over destruction redemption these are themes that come up over and over uh, for a good reason they tell us something about ourselves in your book you make a distinction between binary thinking and continuous thinking what's what's the difference between those two well, our, our tendency is to think in a binary way. You know, there's good and bad people. It's black and white. It's good and evil. Uh, there's, you know, two types of people, people that categorize things into two types and people that don't, as, my, as I humorously say. Um, but that's not very productive for understanding a complex, continuous world. You know, it's like poverty. What is poverty? Well, the UN defines as it is making a dollar ninety a day or less, or it might be two dollars and twenty cents a day or less. Whatever the criteria is, you you draw the line there. You have to draw the line somewhere, and say below that line we're going to call it extreme poverty. Below this next line we'll call it poverty, and above that, you know, what are you going to call that? Not poverty, uh, you know. And, the, and the, so the the poverty or not poverty thing that's a binary way of thinking. You know, but making two dollars and thirty cents a day is not exactly being, you know, prosperous or wealthy. It's you're still poor, but just not as poor. So the words we use to put things into categories is not always as useful as a continuous uh, thing. This is the abortion issue. You know, pro-lifers think that life begins at conception. Therefore, any anything after the day of conception is, you know, murder. 
that if you, you you take the life of the fetus. Whereas science doesn't tell us that, you know, I mean, it's it's one place you could draw the line, but you could draw the line at half a dozen other places. And the consensus now, at least in the pro-choice community is among scientists, is that maybe 20 weeks to 22, 23 weeks or so. Well, what's the criteria there? Well, there's several, you know, when the kind of neural networks are, are, are put together in the brain where there's some kind of you know, sense of suffering or, or or well-being in the fetus, and therefore that would be more human-like. But even there, there's going to be variation among fetuses, and you know, it's somewhat arbitrary where you, where you draw the line because it's a continuum. But at least that approach to thinking makes you more, I think, flexible in your your, your thinking about these kinds of important issues. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today? that will have a positive impact on their lives. If you had to give us all one piece of homework, what would it be? It's, I think, having um, a sense of of humility. That, that just uh, I call this the Copernican principle, uh, apply personally. You know, the Copernican principle is that we're not special. You know, we're not the center of the universe and so on. The Copernican principle, apply personally, is I'm not special. Uh, there's nothing about me just because I'm me and you're not that makes me special. And, uh, and, and I'm not omniscient. You know, what do I know? Uh, and, and that kind of humility makes you more tolerant of people that think differently from you. Like, maybe I could learn something from this person. I mean, I try to think about that when I, you know, I get sort of trapped with somebody on a plane and they want to talk my ear off or whatever. Uh, you know, I just think, okay, you know, I really don't want to be here. I really just want to read my book. But, okay, what can I learn from this person? Because I know for sure this this guy knows something I don't know. So I'm going to just ask a lot of questions. I had this, this, this. Um, I, I ride my bike every day a couple hours. And there's this guy that always shows up. He just shows up. He likes the yak, 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 yak at the, at the coffee after the ride. You know, it's like, okay, this guy's really getting irritating. Uh, but, you know, it turns out he was a, a lobbyist in Washington for decades. I thought, I know absolutely nothing about lobbying and how it works. So I'm going to turn this irritating yakety yak guy that I don't want to listen to into something <laughs> interesting. What can I learn from this guy? And it turns out it was super interesting just by just kind of asking the right questions to get something out of somebody you didn't know before. And I think that kind of humility is, is a useful strategy. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Skeptic.com, MichaelShermer.com, Amazon for my books, and but Skeptic.com for the magazine and my podcast is online at Skeptic.com or Science Salon. I have my own podcast, Science Salon podcast. So that's it. Uh, awesome. And if you go to happiness.info, I'm going to link up all of links underneath this interview. Michael, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed it. Happiness.info.